Good morning. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. If you don't know who I am, my name is Dan McDonald, uh, senior pastor here. I have not been up here for, I think it's four or five weeks now. I want to thank the elders for giving, uh, generously giving us a mini sabbatical from the first week of July to the first week of August. And I'm uh, glad to be back. It's great to see all of you. Hope you're having a good summer. We're at that point in our service for those of you who are new to church or Christianity where we reflect upon a passage from the Bible. We are going through the book of Ephesians right now. It's a letter Paul wrote to a church in a place called Ephesus. We're near the end of it. We're at Ephesians chapter 6. And the tension is about to rise. Please read along with me our scriptures. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this they will receive back from the Lord whether he's a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is quite a passage to come back from vacation to, isn't it? I'm sure you can feel the tension as well as me. And it is true that there is a lot of psychological noise created by the idea of slavery and the Bible. And so before we exegete this passage, we're going to have to take a few moments and talk about the realities of what the Bible says and slavery. And so I've got two points today, the reality of slavery, and then we're going to discuss the passage in our second point, the redemption of slavery. Those are our two points, and let's just get to it. The reality of slavery. Here Paul tells both slaves and slave owners how to treat each other. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not explicitly condemning the institution of slavery. He is not. And we have to face that, and we have to deal with that. And how do we deal with that? Well, I think we start by asking, is God commending or in favor of slavery? And I submit to you that he is not and does not. There is no evidence in the Bible that God commends slavery despite the way slave owners in certain parts of human history read the scriptures. Let me remind us of several factors that we need to consider. Firstly, let me remind all of us about all of the narrative of the Bible. Because the whole narrative of the Bible is centered around one theme, and that theme is redemption from slavery. Ask any Jewish person who knows their Bible, which is the Old Testament, about what the central story of their Bible is, and any responsibly well-read Jewish person will tell you 
that the center of their Bible, of the Old Testament, is God rescuing his people, the Jewish people, from slavery to Egypt, and then protecting them and guiding them into a homeland where they can live free. Ask any Christian who's reasonably aware of their Bible, their Old Testament, and their New Testament, and they will tell you that the central message of the Bible as a whole, including the New Testament, is the same. It's the coming of Jesus to accomplish an exodus, a freedom from slavery, the freeing of humans of every tribe and race and tongue and nation to their slavery to this thing we call sin. The heart of the Bible is about being freed from slavery. Jesus, when he came, made it very clear. He said, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And then he said why he came. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's the word doulos. It's the same word that we translate in our passage as slaves. Not to be doulost, but to doulos. To give his life a ransom for many in That language, that ransom language, is the language of paying the price to free a slave from slavery. Romans 6 makes it abundantly clear. When you were slaves to sin in your former life, now you have been set free, verse 22, from sin to become slaves to righteousness. This is the narrative movement that centers the whole biblical narrative and work of God in human history. Clue number one. Clue number two. Let's look beyond history to eternity. What will happen when Jesus comes back and ushers in the eternal state? Will slavery exist? No. Slavery will be abolished. It will be no more. Slavery was not part of his creation plan for us. It's not part of his new creation plan for us. God does not commend slavery. Clue number three. There's a book called Philemon in the New Testament. If you've ever read Philemon, it's a very interesting story. Paul's writing to Philemon, a fellow Christian, about a slave who ran away from Philemon named Onesimus, who is now with Paul and has become a Christian in that journey, probably from meeting Paul. We don't know why he ran away from uh, from Philemon. We don't know the occasion of his conversion. We simply know these facts from the letter itself. But what is interesting is what Paul tells Philemon, a slave owner and a Christian, accept him back, no longer as a doulos, slave, but more than a doulos, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is changing the relationship between a slave owner and a slave master, who are now both Christians, to one of brotherhood which is perfect equality. There is something about that exchange of relationship, that leveling of everyone in the gospel that tells us that God does not commend slavery. He does not like slavery. He will abolish slavery. It will be no more. 
But does God condemn slavery in the Bible? No. No, he does not. And this is the frustrating part for all of us who hate slavery as we should. I wish there was an 11th commandment that said, thou shalt not allow slavery. But God didn't give it. God has allowed humans to commit slavery just as he has allowed us to be greedy, to be selfish, to be cruel, to be racist, to be sexist, and a thousand other horribly wrong things. God in this world has allowed it. In the Old Testament, God allowed Israelites to practice a certain kind of slavery, a more a very moderated kind of slavery, primarily the slavery of someone who has a family debt to another and sells themselves to a kind of slavery called bondservant. This could also be translated that way because in Rome they had them too. For a time to pay the debt off and when the debt was paid, slavery was over. The Old Testament also had every seven years, slaves were to be free. Slave was not meant to be a permanent condition. Slaves could buy their way out. Slaves were to be treated well, etc. But he allowed room for it. And in the New Testament here, we encounter Roman slavery, which is far worse than the slavery that the Old Testament allowed. Far better, by the way, than the slavery we know in North American culture from the African-American experience. Roman slaves could buy themselves out. Roman slaves were often slaves for a time, like Old Testament slaves. Roman slaves could own assets. Roman slaves had methods of manumission, becoming free, mostly by the death of their master who would then free all their slaves in their will. However, Roman slavery is no joke. It was oppressive. It was exploitive. It was dehumanizing and it was degrading. And we have to face this. Slaves were considered property. They could be abused with little penalty in the Roman period. Many of the slaves in particular were sexually abused by citizens of Rome. So we have to face this honestly. How do we do? How do we respond to this? Those of you who are skeptics, those of you who are Christians, we need to be honest about the fact that Paul didn't demand the obliteration of the institution. Here are some steps that I suggest as a starting point. I will be speaking about this. This this demands seminars and lectures for a full treatment. I'll be speaking to the young adults later this year, this fall, about this among other issues. Hopefully in the new year we will have seminars for us as a church on Sundays after lunch on this issue and others. But for now, what do we do? Firstly, I suggest, let's look carefully in the mirror. Look carefully in the mirror. Because when we look in the mirror, and look at the reality of human history and human present history, we're confronted with the reality of human darkness, human evil, human depravity, and human enslavement of humans. Men and women 
let's be honest. Slavery is a human institution. We did this. From the dawn of human history, it seems, we have records of people enslaving others. Let's not get so busy trying to pin something on God and not look at the real culprit. We enslaved each other. And if you think that's just ancient history and we've evolved to a better place, may I remind you that present advocates for the end of slavery are united in saying that the amount of slaves right now in the world is between 45 and 50 million people. Million. 22 million of them are women forced into marriages they do not wish upon themselves, many times underaged with no escape. 28 million are people in forced labor. Of that 28 million, a number of them, this is where the estimates vary, maybe as many as 10 to 15 million, but at a very minimum, five to six million are in the sex slave trade. These are women and these are children, and there is little to zero outcry in our society, and I have to ask you why. We're so busy being angry at slavery in the past and we're blinding ourselves to the slavery in our midst. Before we get on our high moral pulpits and cancel God, let's look at who started this, who perpetuates this, and who refuses to stop this in our own time. Slavery is in our hearts. The desire to rule over people, oppress people, enslave people for our own profit, our own pleasure, our own comfort, our own influence, it's deeply embedded in the human soul. You cannot escape the truth that when opportunities arise, we enslave. How do I know? Because I know me, and I know you, and so does God. The Bible tells us that we first enslave ourselves. We make false gods to replace the true God and begin to worship those things. It says in Romans 1, starting in verse 21, that although people knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise We became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling humans and birds and animals and creeping things. So we worship sculptures, statues, or they did. Today we're more sophisticated. We've removed the sculptures. But you know what those false gods promised them? Wealth, power, a legacy, influence. reputation, are these not values that we go after? Men and women, this is Toronto. I've just named five of the things people move to this city for. We worship money, control, influence, comfort, pleasure, just like they did. 
Listen to David Foster Wallace from This Is Water, one of our generation's most prophetic poets. He said, because there's something else that's weird but true in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and your beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid and a fraud. And so on and on. Here's the truth, men and women. Whether we're ready for it or not, here's the real truth about you and me, about all of us. We make idols, full stop. Idol makers we are. Our careers, our reputations, our wealth, they become too much value to us. We bend our wills to them. We enslave ourselves to them. We make slave of ourselves. And when we get the opportunity, we bend others to our careers, to our comforts, to our pleasures. We enslave ourselves. And when we can, and get away with it, we'll enslave others. Look in the mirror and you will see the reality of slavery. It's in you and it's in me. But second thing we need to do, we look up. When confronted by this seeming allowing by God, we look to him. And there, if we look carefully enough, we will see our second point, the redemption of slavery. When we look up, we come face to face with this God. And men and women, you need to realize that the person who wrote this is expecting you to have read the previous part before you came to this. You didn't just suddenly step into these verses on slavery. You read all of his letter to the Ephesians. And the letter confronts you with what I want to call the Godness of God. The great sovereign Godness of God. Ephesians 1 talks about a sovereign God who chooses you before the foundation of the earth. You don't choose him. He chooses you. He is God. He's the God who made all things, who does all things, and ensures all things conform, according to Ephesians 1, conform to the purpose of his will. He is God, sovereign in power and authority, and he is God infinite in wisdom and love. This is the godness of God. A God we can't fully understand and we don't have all the answers as to why he does what he does. But it is clear that this God is not as consumed as we are by the momentary cultural crazes that infuriate us. But a generation ago didn't infuriate others. And in a generation won't infuriate them. God cares for the deeper things. For the eternal things. For the things that conform to the eternality and the infinity of himself. God cares 
for this deeper slavery of your soul that will stop you from living with him for eternity. So let us enter this gospel story for a moment. God is this eternal ruler who made us to be his loving children and his obedient doulos, servants. We walked away, we did our own thing, and we self-enslaved and enslaved others. Slavery was the result. In our search for freedom, we kept running into slavery. Ephesians 2. Prior to this, says that we were once enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, doing what we desire and what we will, but by nature children of wrath. We were dead in our sins and transgressions. We had no ability to move toward God because we were enslaved to our selfish desires. We did not want to worship God. We ended up worshiping money, power, pleasure, respect, love. This is the story of humanity. We willingly offered to serve them. They make us feel whole. They make us feel important. We get pats on the back from our culture. And God did something about that. The gospel says God himself, the ruler of all, with all the power, wealth, control that we desire, he himself sent his son to become our doulos, to become our servant, to take upon himself our slavery to sin and the guilt of it. And he bore it in love for us and he broke its power to condemn us and its power to control us. He sold himself, as it were, Jesus did, in the doulos market of humanity. He became the ultimate servant. And the Father, seeing us, his children, selling ourselves into slavery, sent his beloved son, Jesus, to become the servant, the doulos, the slave of all, willingly, to break the chains, our chains, And here we see the redemption of slavery. God has himself entered into the deepest level of servanthood. His freedom taken from him. His life pierced from him for your sin and mine. We were dead in our sins and trespasses enemies of God, but by grace you have been saved and raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 6, 11. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God, men and women, the God of freedom, the God of redemption has come to break the deeper slavery the slavery that would keep you a slave for all eternity. The slavery at the depth of our being is broken when you come to God and you become a Christian. Your sin is paid for and its power to enslave you is broken. 
That is the redemption of slavery by the God of redemption. And look what it does. Look how it changes this incredibly exploitive relationship. Firstly, it changes what it means to serve those in authority over you. And for those of you who are in work, or you have parents, that would be all of us, by the way. This applies to all of us in the station of life we find ourselves, because I don't think any of us are actual slaves, but all of us are under authority of a kind. Slaves, bond servants, do loss. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as you would Christ, as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, making, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. He's just repeating himself time and time and time again. Why? Because he knows them. He knows their hearts. And he writes to them as people with all the dignity and all the rights and all the responsibilities under God to do what is right. We're amazed that he's not condemning the practice of slavery. An original reader is amazed that slaves are being given so much dignity and moral responsibility. Equal members of the church Paul says, obey your earthly masters in fear and trembling. That's a phrase. It's not meant to say be afraid of your master, your human master. But fear and trembling is a phrase that points us to God. Be one who for your love of God and reverence for him, obey your earthly authority. Paul is saying, once you've been freed from the deeper slavery to your idols, and you've become a child of God, you may now redeem your present earthly station of being under authority or even being a slave. You now don't respond to the master as just one above you whom you have to please or get off your back, but you serve him for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of what God has done for you and for the sake of God himself. So Paul says... Don't be tempted to do it just to look good. Don't be tempted to do it just to get the approval of the one above you. Don't be tempted just for promotions. Do your work. Because your work is worship to the one who you are ultimately accountable to and whom you see as your master and father, God. Do your work for his sake. He's giving eternal intrinsic value to your work and eternal intrinsic value to your motivation and de-emphasizing the importance of what your authority over you, your master, thinks of you. Men and women, what would a Roman household look like if slaves acted like this? Despite this nuanced and somewhat ambivalent view of slavery that the New Testament seems to provide, Roman households and Roman society generally gradually gave more and more rights to slaves in the same period that Christianity began to grow more and more influential. More and more empathy to slavery in general as economic factors changed 
and more and more people became voluntary bondservants in the Roman Empire. It all happened at the same time. Christianity grew. There was some economic decline in Rome and more and more people in the lower class now became bondservants to be able to pay for their lives. And Stoicism began to grow in the upper uh, echelons of the cultural elites. And Stoicism, flourishing among the elites, gave some dignity to slaves as well. Before Christianity and Stoicism, slaves were not people. After the onset of Christianity and Stoicism, slaves were considered persons. We don't know the exact influence of Christianity. Historians are fighting about it now. But what we do know is that over time, this became a big change in Roman society. What would it look like in your economic place of work if this prevailing motivation dominated you and others? Why do you work? What motivates you? Who do you want to look good for? I know there's someone's going to ask me, it's in every Q&A, what about ambition? It's great to be ambitious for the right thing. Not for self-glory, but for God's glory. And if you're here and you're a skeptic, I simply need to say the level of transformation even of the way you think about work, is so deep and so total. Christianity isn't just a spiritual decision. It's a decision that gives you a whole new outlook and power on all of life. Second, it not just redeems those of us under authority, it redeems those of us with authority. It says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening something, sorry, knowing that he who is both the servant's master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Paul is saying to the master something very soberly realistic and something quite transformative. Firstly, he's saying, stop your threatening. He knows what, what masters do to motivate their slaves. They threaten them. They coerce them with external threats. They make motivation outside in. Do what I want or you'll get clobbered from the outside. Paul is saying, I know what you're tempted to when you have authority. You're tempted to use your leverage to compel them to do what you want to do. That comes from a heart that is self-enslaving and slave-making. It's soberly realistic, men and women. People in authority, people in power, this is your temptation. If you're leading a group, you know this temptation. It's the lazy way to motivate people. One of the interesting things right now is that as the labor market is tight and Gen Zs know they can flip from job to job, the leverage is being switched from the managers to the employees. But guess what? Leverage it is, and leverage is being used as it is now by employees because they often have the power in their profession. And I say to you, the gospel says to you, your way of being motivated is not through leverage, but through love, the love of God in Jesus. That is what the gospel wants to transform it to. So, Lead 
out of love for God and love for others. Men and women, it is God with whom we deal and God with whom we must deal. Because it is in God and only God that we find this ultimate freedom. Because God himself, God our ultimate master, the one to whom we owe everything, the one in whom we owe all obedience to as bond servants, this God sent his son, his one and only son. And that son being in very nature God himself, willingly came in the form of a, of a doulos, of a servant. He became fully human. He served us every moment of every day by perfectly obeying the will of his master, as it were, his beloved father in our place. He died the death of someone lower than a slave. He died the death of a despised criminal who was a slave. That's what crucifixion was generally reserved for slaves who were criminals and Christians who were persecuted. But he died not to pay off his own debt, but to pay yours and mine. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He entered into the ultimate doulos position, allowing death to overcome him who is immortal and who is infinite, whom death cannot touch. He allowed death to swallow him, to master him, to cover him. And then he rested for a day, a Sabbath day, the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday. He rested from all his work the work he did of his own volition, the work of dying for us and rising for us and ascending for us to glorify his Father, our Master, the God who is, who wants to change our relationship of doulos into the relationship of son and daughter. Don't you realize that I cannot say with full integrity that there is no way for a master and doulos relationship to be good because at the center of the universe is a master, God the Father, who sent the ultimate doulos, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to worse than slavery for you and me, the great master behind everything and the great servant who came into everything, who are two members of the Trinity who then sent their spirit to come and serve us by being inside of us and dealing with all of our crap and freeing us. This is the architecture of the one who created the universe and it is beautiful. It is pure love and grace for you and for me. I am a slave men and women. Bob Dylan was right. You got to serve somebody. You're either going to serve yourself and give yourself to false idols and become a slave and slave maker, or you're going to become a doulos of God himself, the one who voluntarily gave his son to die in my place. For in him, I have found a grace so freeing, a love so nourishing, and a joy so transforming that I will never go back to the freedom 
I had before I became a Christian because this slavery is freedom indeed because this master is a master of pure freedom and love and his son is a doulos of douloses. Come to him and see the redemption of slavery that is at the center of the universe and is willing to come into the center of your soul if you will allow it. Let us pray. Father, may it be that we understand the deep, sober, and freeing truths of what it means, what it means for you, our master, to send your son to become our slave, as it were, our doulos, our servant, that you could become our father and he could become our brother and we could become the eternal children free. And may it be that we allow that to change all of our relationships. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I've probably gone way over time, but we're gonna make time for questions today. We still have time. Um, this question, you, you touched on it a little bit, but uh, it came at 11.04, so maybe it wasn't as entirely clear in the sermon, but the question is, why does the Bible not condemn slavery with at least equal force that it condemns sexual immorality? Sure, slavery is a greater moral evil. Would you like me to repeat that? No. Okay. It's a great question. It's a question I, like you, am going to ask when I get there. I wish he did. I have to just say, God is God, and I don't know. And that's a great question. And it has puzzled and perplexed me for a long time. Next. Sorry, next question? Next question, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, I got the same question you do. Sorry, I was reading, so I wasn't entirely paying attention. Oh. Sorry, that's my bad, that's my bad. I should be listening, but I'm trying to sift your questions, friends. Okay, so the next question says, um, you mentioned obey them not only to win their favor regarding slaves when their eyes is on you, but as slaves as Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Ephesians 6.6, 6, uh, why does this passage, Paul, uh, why does this passage uh, not mention fleeing slash seeking redemption? Would this apply to those experiencing modern slavery today, especially for those in modern slave labor? Should they continue in their line of work? Thanks. Right. Um, man, those are great questions. Uh, I'll answer a few of them as best I can. So, It is clear that the early church, from the book of Philemon onward, militated fairly aggressively against slavery. By 108, um, in the epistle to Polycarp, Ignatius was already saying that we need, to, we need to tell the slaves to stop asking for public funding for their freedom. There was no government public funding for slavery and freedom in 108 in the Roman Empire. Public there meant we need to stop having Slaves asked for the church to pay for their freedom. Apparently, some kind of pattern had come up where Christians were regularly freeing slaves and the church was paying for it and slaves were beginning to expect that every church could pay for their freedom. 
that tells you something about what the culture of, was like in the early church and how it developed. I don't know why Paul didn't say it. Scholars think, scholars are split on Philemon, whether he's asking Philemon to free him or not. In integrity, I only had about seven hours to check that part of the biblical text, and I could not, when I read the papers and essays on this particular issue, I couldn't resolve in my mind whether Paul was changing the relationship so much that it was actually asking him to free it, or changing the relationship significantly within slavery, and so now I understand why all the scholars are still fighting about it. So I don't know why, to answer the question, Paul didn't condemn the institution. It may be, you have to understand that in the New Testament, there are certain things that the apostles say that are them, and them. And like Paul seems to have a thought in his head that Jesus is going to come before he dies or just after he dies. The imminency of the Lord's return seems to be very, very much more in Paul's mind than history has shown itself to be. I don't exactly know what to do with that. I believe that Christ could come imminently, but I also, when I read Paul, I go, yeah. Paul was in a place where Christianity was a couple thousand people in an empire. Maybe he just didn't think at the time to write about it because, I don't know, but the Holy Spirit helped him say it, so I'm going to ask God. Same question. Yeah. Okay. Um, this one's a good one. I, we, we are strapped for time, but I do want to ask this one because this is a great question. In light of Did this you write story, it? No, no. Okay, it's checking. <laughs> you, really, you really like it a lot, so. In, in light of this sermon, what can be said concerning the apathetic attitude of, church his, of the church historically when presented with the reality of slavery? While acknowledging that the church played a role in abolitionism, what responsibility does the church today still have for its former role as an accomplice to the institution of slavery? Come to my session in the new year on that one. I think, you're, I think you're bringing up the issue of reparations. I think you're bringing up the issue of repentance and how it should be done. The church needs to repent from its previous apathy as the church need to, needs to repent from our present apathy. We want to do this right. Let's do this right. Let's be champions against slavery everywhere at all times. I don't have any problem with that. But let's be, let's not be hypocrites. The church was wrong in the view of slavery in North America and earlier, in my opinion. The church should have abolished slavery as an institution much more quickly than it did. I'm glad for William Wilberforce. I'm glad for all the civil rights leaders I grew up Martin Luther King Jr. was my hero. But I have to deal with the fact that God allows humans to be idiots and the church to be foolish and sleepy. It drives me crazy. But my own blindness to my own sins, my own blindness to things that I should be far more um, awakened by and frustrated, God will show me in time my own mistakes. So I think we need to come with as full a measure of humility and repentance as we possibly can and as is reasonable. I don't know all the answers. 
politically minded Christians are working out the political, economic, all kinds of issues of how the church should work out its repentance for slavery in the past. I don't know. I've been looking at the reparations argument, for example, for two decades now. This is a, t- this is a tough one. Um, let's start now by doing what God does. However, let's remember the gospel and our freedom from our slavery and how much it means. And from that position of freed ex-slaves, let that frame our view of slavery and frame our view of the deeper causes of slavery, the slavery within our hearts, and let's at least be people who share the good news that there is freedom from your deepest slavery through the coming of God's doulos, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I just feel completely inadequate to deal with such a big topic. Uh, But we must at least confront some of the challenges. And we must learn to be a church that values the freedom from slavery that you've given us and then fights for the expression of that freedom in every sphere, including physical slavery. Help us to be champions for the freedom of the gospel and for the freedom from all forms of human sin and slavery and exploitation. We praise you and thank you that you are the God who frees. You seem to hate slavery, but we don't understand everything about the way your church has written about it and the way you have inspired them. Help us to just trust in what you have done in our questions and to bring others to the foot of the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand for our song of response.